be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. And correction! Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman, a podcast that Entertainment Weekly has hailed as a podcast. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, she's a woman, and for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Caitlin, (laughs) how are you doing today? I'm good. It's a nice warm day in New York. It's a nice warm day. I'm really tired for no reason. I think I'm still tired from doing a show at Playhouse on Saturday because that's how old I am. Yeah, that's true. Now I know what I have to look forward to. Exactly. (laughs) Crippling frailty. That's what you have to look forward to. But that leads me to my question that I want to ask you. We've been able to do some super safe, socially distanced, law-abiding, face-mask-protected drag shows in New York City lately. How has it felt to be able to see people on stage like me and Brenda Darling and Izzy Uncut and Jan Sport and Monet Exchange? Um, It's felt really good. It's like a sliver of energy and hope back in the atmosphere. Yeah. And it also just feels really good to like see my friends and know that they're like making more money that one night than they have in the whole past year, essentially. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, that's just like a good feeling. Yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting for me, too, because I feel like I just my body has been useless. And first of all, being able to make money is great. But my body has felt so useless. I feel like I'm withering away, like, you know, like in a wicker chair by the sea, <laughs> like an old Victorian lady. Uh. And being able to put my body to use again and have people be entertained and having a good time, it's so, it makes me realize that I haven't just turned into a corpse over the last year. It's just that I haven't had the opportunity to be alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And also a good reminder for you that you still love performing, you know? Yeah. Because I was like, I don't even know if I like this anymore. (laughs) So yeah, that's been making me really happy. And look out world. Who knows? Maybe things will get better enough that by this fall or winter, I'll be able to come see you in a city near you. So keep your ears open on this podcast for updates about where I'm going to be, because hopefully I will be everywhere. Anyway, I want to dive right into our serious groundbreaking interview. But first, I have a little treat for you, Caitlin. This is a good one. Every week we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. Torn from the headlines, as I say. I don't. I can't do it without the accent. That makes no sense. <laughs> the idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about a faux fox. 
I discovered a new animal, Caitlin. Very excited. <laughs> oh, like, let us go one week without doing good news about animals and we won't do it. You we know won't. what I mean? No, yeah, we can't yeah. do it. <laughs> Specifically about dogs. You know, <laughs> like, we, I think of, of all of like all 15, 16 episodes, like eight have been about yeah, dogs. Yeah, very true. And you know why? Because a lot of news about dogs is good. Yeah. You know? I don't I don't see how anyone could complain about that. Right. So anyway, in our weekly dog segment <laughs> this week, I've discovered a new animal. Its name is, well, this is a feminist podcast, so let's say her. Her name is the Maned Wolf. And though she looks pretty silly, like a fox on stilts, she's actually part of a new exploration into animal emotions, which, Caitlin, I know you're all about animal emotions. I am. I think it's so fascinating how um, there's not enough studies on, like, do animals grieve? Do they celebrate? How is it similar or different from humans, you know? Yeah, and this is totally about that. Because I found the Maned Wolf first, and then I had to come up with an excuse to talk about it, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I found out that there is actually a reason to talk about it. Even though the main wolf looks pretty silly, she's actually part of a new exploration into animal emotions. To start, have a look at this video of a nice maned wolf having a stretch. Look at this guy. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, it's so pretty. It's so cute. <laughs> we'll share some images of the main wolf on the She's a Woman podcast Instagram, but I just wanted to show Caitlin here so that she could get a great idea of what we're talking about. He's gorgeous and silly at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is a maned wolf? She's fluffy, red, and lanky with ridiculously long legs. Is she wearing the Chanel boots? Yeah, she is. <laughs> but according to Smithsonian Magazine, she is also a keystone species because she provides critical services for her ecosystem. She keeps pest populations under control by hunting small rodents. I feel attacked, but... <laughs> And she helps disperse the seeds of native plants by eating them and pooping them out in different places, which is necessary. <laughs> uh. Maned wolves are also great ambassadors for the conservation of South American wildlands where they come from. They're some of the most threatened biomes in the world, and maned wolves really help us pay attention to and care about them. And why are maned wolves so important right now? Well, last year they became part of a study of animal emotions. Scientists began monitoring their heart rates to see if they had hidden emotions. Here's what I mean. They're looking to see if maimed wolves have big changes in heart rates when, from the outside, they appear to be calm or not reacting. What scientists have found is that a maimed wolf may look calm on the outside when responding to stress, but on the inside, her heart is racing. So when we look at animals and think, okay, they don't have feelings, look at their calm faces, we're getting it all wrong. They have all of the emotions, all of them! We just can't see them with the naked eye. And when a main wolf hears a lawnmower startup, her heart pounds with fear. When she sees a partner, her heart pounds with excitement. And we only know this now because of the study. What an important study. Isn't that amazing? And also so shocking that not a lot of people know about this animal, I feel. Yeah. They're I've, so pretty. We love animals and we've never heard <gasps> yeah. of this animal. She's so gorgeous. It's so interesting. The, some of the stories that they were talking about, they're talking about maimed wolf couples getting together and when they see each other their heart rate goes up and you know you don't see it on their like facial expressions necessarily yeah. but they have physical emotional reactions right away to things just like we do yeah i think there was a 
a long time where scientists didn't think animals felt things like humans did that that they just thought about their food and hunting and whatever. Yeah. But I think in the past like 10 years, more scientists are starting to like come around and research and be like, wait, I think, you know, animals besides maybe just like monkeys or dogs, right. you know what I mean? Do yeah. experience emotions just like humans. And if I think about it, like how much time do we as humans spend thinking about things besides food and mating? Like we spend a lot of time thinking about that too. So like it's true. They're like us, we're like we, them. We you are know. mammals. We yeah. are mammals, you know. <laughs> you know, some of us small mammals like me. <laughs> anyway, since we don't speak the language of animals, we need projects like this to better understand how they perceive their environments so that we can use that information to help them thrive according to the Smithsonian. And I think we also need these projects so that people realize that you can sympathize with animals and look at them as more than just decorations out there in the world. Yeah, I hate when like someone will yell at a dog or something and they're like, oh, it's just a dog. He doesn't know. Yes, he does know. He He does. (laughs) Very passionate about this, clearly. Exactly. (laughs) So when I read about this, I was like, oh, this is right up Caitlin's alley. Anyway. All right, enough about that. Let's take a quick break. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. But today we have a very special interview that I'd like to get to. This came to us. Someone asked to be part of our show, which is exciting because I feel like... I know. It makes us feel like we're not just talking to ourselves, which we would (laughs) happily do. Yeah. (laughs) But it's nice to know we're not screaming things into the void, you know, that people are listening and they're thinking about their friends or clients and that there seems to be a, you know, like a market that we've created or whatever, you know? Exactly. And... We get a lot of people that reach out to us and we think very carefully about who goes on, of course. And this one made a lot of sense to me because this is not just an amazing woman. This is an amazing woman who supports other incredible women. So it's like double points, you know? Yeah. Our guest today is Lisa McNulty. In 2014, she became the fourth artistic director of the WP Theater, the Women's Project Theater. It's the country's oldest company dedicated to the work of women, trans, and non-binary artists. Since then, she's expanded WP's programming both on and off stage with the Pipeline Festival, becoming one of the city's most popular programs for emerging female-identified artists. Prior to becoming artistic director of Women's Project, Lisa was artistic line producer at Manhattan Theater Club and also worked at 13P and the McCarter Theater. Today, she's joining us to talk about her work and how the theater can survive in these wild times. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. First of all, tell me, how are you doing? Where are you? What's going on? 
I'm in my apartment, which is where I've been for a year because theater is not in space right now. But we're we're figuring it out. We're figuring out how to make theater in new, new ways and be innovative. But yeah, every time I go to my theater and it's empty and there's just the ghost light on stage, it's a little bit of a heartbreak. But we're doing our best. We're doing our best to, to pivot and adjust and still serve our artists. Well, I want to comment to the audience who can't see Lisa McNulty that she has a beautiful bookshelf behind her, which in a pandemic is one of the best friends that you could possibly have. Are these all your books? Have they been traveling around with you for a long time? They have. I mean, it's it's my books and my wife's books. And so it's funny because my wife is a news editor at The Guardian. And obviously, I have a job in the arts. So I feel like the sides of the book shelf are pretty clear. There's like a whole bunch of stuff about Joe's Joe's work and then a whole bunch of stuff about my work. But yeah, we both yeah. are, we're both readers. And I agree with you. I feel in the beginning of the pandemic, when things were feeling crazy, it gave me comfort to look across and know that I had a lot of friends to keep me company. I always feel every time I move, I always sort all of my books into ones that I know I can let go of because I've already read and books I know I need to keep. And then both piles end up coming with me because it's just like, I'm like, my my blood, sweat and tears are in those. And I gave them my all. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit more in depth about how a live experience organization can survive through all this madness. And I want to talk about the history of the organization a little bit more too later on. But first, I want to say, what are some of the things that you do day to day right now to keep the project alive? Well, uh, we bought a whole lot of camera equipment. (laughs) So we just decided, you know, physical stages aren't available to us, but the artists still, their imaginations exist. And we're able to occupy this new space because we were, we made a little investment. We bought some cameras. We bought some, we bought a ring light. I don't have a ring light. I see your ring light, but we bought a bunch of them. We bought webcams. We bought laptops and uh, we just decided we were going to bring theater to the artists or bring the, the means of production to the artists so that we can continue to make work. So we've, been doing a whole bunch of streaming work where we just, I just got back from San Francisco, we, where we shot a movie, which seems crazy to me. We shot a concert musical. It's a rock opera based on a story from Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's the story of Procne and Philomela. It's beautiful. And it's the band is, tells the story and are the performers. I, I, I have to say, So much of this time is terrible, but what's not terrible is at 52 to learn how to do something entirely new and to be able to make space for our artists to do the same. And so, you know, we made a live immersive experience with artists all over the country that was about turning virtual space into a place of nourishment rather than a place of depletion. Uh, We made a visual podcast with a dance company. We actually, we just debuted last night. MJ Kaufman, who's a trans writer, wrote an adaptation of John Lilly's Galatea, which is an Elizabethan play with an explicit trans narrative. Um, Interesting. uh, yeah. And so we just debuted that last night with an entirely trans and GNC cast, which was exciting. So yeah, just like, I, I think this is a moment to say to yourself, 
how can I serve my community? My, my job, right, is to uplift the work of folks who are marginalized for their gender or gender expression. So how can I be very present for them right now and still serve them at a time where I don't exactly have the tools I usually have, but what are some new tools that we can develop? That's so beautiful because for me, when I had to pivot and go to digital and get all the camera equipment, I think that I got so frustrated by the pivot because I'm sure you know what it's like when you're used to creating live experiences and you are so in love with them and that's why you do what you do. It's so hard to let go of that, but to think about it from the other side and and say, oh, you know, I'm trying to serve in an audience. I'm trying to serve a community. Instead of thinking about what you're going through, to think about what they're going through. I think that is such a beautiful way of looking at it. And it's kind of adjusting my attitude a little bit. And I need that for 2021, you know? Um, Believe me, I had plenty of long, dark nights of the soul where I was like tearing my hair out. But I, I do think... You know, I found the creativity of artists to be incredibly inspiring to me. It's like sort of dragged me out of my own uh, complicated feelings about this time and and really sort of energized me towards what's possible. But I would say to you, you're funny. Funny is hard in this space. Funny is hard. hard. I really get it. I really get why that's a challenge. And for me, I, I think we've just been trying to think about how to you know, how do you overcome that? How do you make, um, you know, what is it about that exchange that you can preserve in this time? You know, uh, energy between audience and performer. You know, at first I had so much trouble because, you know, doing comedy, Zoom will mute people while a main person is talking. And so if I'm talking and people are laughing, I like technologically cannot hear that anyone else is responding. But I did sort of train myself. I was doing a college gig and I sort of trained myself to look outside of my screen and watch people's faces, which you actually can do. And you learn people's body language a little bit more through Zoom. And and I saw this one young drag queen who was having such a great time. I was like, okay, I'm going to make this about her and me because she looks happy and that can be enough for me today. So was there, was there, speaking of that, was there a moment this year where your new projects reached someone and you were like, okay, we're doing the thing. We're do we're making the transition. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's allowed us to work with international artists in a way that's not usually available to us. We, we just finished something with a, a playwright who's based in Hong Kong. And we had an actor in Hong Kong, an actor in Taiwan, actors on the West Coast, like really being able to be fully present for this piece of work. Yeah. Um, it was also, it's a play that's dealing with the Hong Kong protests. And it was a real education for me in terms of really valid concerns about security that the artists had participating. And, you know, suddenly having, you know, I mean, obviously people's physical security is very much part of my job, but just having to educate myself about China and the government and what the consequences could be if we weren't very careful, but also at the same time, really reaching an international audience who felt like the story that we were telling were Stephanie Quo, this playwright, was telling about what it means to to be in Hong Kong right now 
yeah. was really being received and important for people to hear. And I just thought, right. okay, well, then we're doing a thing. We're doing a thing that matters to people. So enough about this year and the challenges because we could live there forever and we're stuck there now. I do want to rewind a little bit. And this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. As I said, a lot of our young listeners are young women who are looking towards bright futures. And so I'm kind of wondering what you were like as a young woman. And if you knew that, you know, theater was going to be a part of your world from a young age. It's interesting. I didn't grow up in a, in a family or a circumstance where art was m- very much part of my everyday life. I didn't grow up going to the theater. I, I think I knew that I wanted something different than what I had in my small town. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I think that felt to me like a place where the things that were important to me books and storytelling and art, the art that I had been able to come across that I could really immerse myself in that. And I I really found that to be true. I joined the dance company when I was in college and I did a lot of theater and I just tried a lot of things on for size. And I guess the arts for me were escape and a vehicle. So, so no, I mean, I think to answer your question, I was not somebody at five years old who like, you know, I was in the road company of Annie and I knew that I that I was going to do it. And, you know, I ballet lessons from the age of, of two. That, that was not my situation. But it seemed like a place to go where the people who were like me were. And so it seemed like a thing I could chase. Um, and I, I really found that to be true. I mean, I think, you know, certainly a life in the arts requires a lot of sacrifice. Um, yeah. But I don't, think that that sacrifice has ever outweighed the satisfactions of it. So, you know, I mean, I think I've, I think if I have a superpower, it's that I follow my nose. Yeah. And I think you have to have that, that ability to uh, understand what's authentic to you um, so that you can follow it because the universe is going to tell you a lot of things that you should do, that you should pursue, that you should have. And certainly growing up in a working class family, nobody had ever been to college. And the people they knew who'd been to college were like doctors and lawyers and did these things that yeah. felt like it justified the expense or justified the time or justified that life. And I was not only going to college, but I was going to college and pursuing this thing that nobody I knew or was around understood really. And so without that sort of understanding that, yeah, no, but that thing over there feels right to me, you could very easily be knocked off course. So that's a thing that's always felt super important to me. This podcast is growing and developing with every episode. And I love that we've had both kinds of guests. We've had people that from six years old knew that they wanted to be a doctor and that was all they wanted to do and it was like a laser focus and we've had people that followed such winding paths through life and i love that every one of those people has been just as incredible there's no formula to it and when i think about my own life i think that i'm the same as you i have just followed my interests one at a time and one stepping stone at a time to where i am now and there was no point when i was six that i was like i'm going to become a drag queen or even i'm going to become a performer you know i thought i was going to be a deep sea diver actually (laughs) so it's just like 
I think it's so important what you're saying that, you know, if you're one of those people that's a follow your nose kind of toucan, <laughs> then that's okay. You don't have to be the laser focused kind to do incredible things. Yeah. I mean, I think I just knew that I wanted something else and that there were certain kinds of things that were interesting to me and that I was a little weirder than folks around me. <laughs> and now I, run, now I run a little theater in New York and I'm married to a lady. So you do the math. I was weirder than everybody around me. Yeah, but <laughs> And thank God, you know. <laughs> so how did you hear about the Women's Project Theater and become involved? So I, I was working at a theater in New Jersey, the McCarter Theater, a wonderful theater. But I was, I was an intern and, another, and, and I wasn't getting paid and it was fine. I was doing my, I was paying my dues. And I got a call to come in and meet with the founder, Julia Miles, to interview for a job to be the, uh, to be the literary manager, overseeing the yeah. script and talking to playwrights and stuff. And so I, I met with her and absolutely against the odds because I was 100% not qualified. Um, yes. she, she gave me my first paying job. When I yeah. first moved to New York with a bunch of folks who'd worked, we'd also been apprentices at a little theater in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, not little, but it's in Louisville, Kentucky, Actress Theater yeah. Louisville. We all moved to New York, and we started a theater company, like real sweat equity, like painting the walls, building the sets, doing all the things. And we'd sort of gotten, you know, paid our dues in that way. But then lots of folks out of that theater company have done incredibly well. Yeah. Folks who are working in studios and run major regional theaters and, you know, have big lives and careers. And so that, you know, we made our little theater company and we made all kinds of work and, and got a kind of reputation. But what we didn't have is a, a lot of professional experience. And so I went to New Jersey and I got that professional experience, but yeah. still I was at the beginning of cur my career when the founder of WP gave me, gave me my first gig. And yeah. it really, it was was the thing that launched me. So I, this is actually my third time working here. I, yeah. I, I, was, I had the, that first job in the 90s. God help me because I'm old. <laughs> um, I, I had that first gig and then I came back in the early 2000s. And then I went to go work at Manhattan Theater Club, which you mentioned um, at the beginning where I was producing on Broadway as well as off Broadway. But mm. I, I felt like when I got the call about this job, I remember that initial meeting I'd had with the founder and the way that this institution's mission has really formed who I am. Just the idea of art plus a kind of activism, a kind of advocacy. And, and not to say that work without that is empty, but for me, I needed that extra piece in order to really feel fulfilled. And I felt like my time working at a theater where I was, you know, working on Broadway, working on international collaborations, working in a really big way that I could bring it to this institution that had this long history and st storied history, but like had always been small, that I could provide something that could be really important to this institution at this time. So I felt like it was time for me to give back to the institution that had given so much to me. As you're looking back over the years, like you've worked with some wonderful writers like Sarah Rule, whose work I've come to really like over the years. And I was wondering, was there an experience or a collaboration that you had that was has been defining for your work? You know, not like a favorite, but you look back and you realize like, oh, this is this really defined my work with with WP. Um, Sarah is a great example. I mean, Sarah, I am the first literary manager she met with whenever when she was an undergrad. Um, oh, my 
my gosh. Yeah. She still, Paula Vogel, who I don't know if you know, Paula is a wonderful playwright, how I learned to drive and, um, uh, uh, anyways, extraordinary playwright called me because she was still teaching at Yale then and said, I have a playwright you need to meet. And, you know, if Paula Vogel calls you and she tells you to do anything, if she tells you to like commit murder, you do it. Yeah, you're oh, like, well, all right, stab, stab, sure. stab. <laughs> I'll, I'll, gra- I'll grab some plastic bags. Uh, anyways, but um, <laughs> she uh, she called and she said she has this extraordinary student who was a poetry student at the time. And would I meet with her? And um, Sarah tells a very funny story, which I don't remember. I met with her and evidently I was wearing a leopard print miniskirt, which I don't remember owning. A leopard print miniskirt and uh, a combat boots which sounds like me, but I don't remember it. And that was, I mean, that was probably 25 years ago. And we've had this long collaboration and long friendship. And I think she's a person who's really helped me define my own aesthetic, that kind of beautifully theatrical voice that she has. And we've worked together a ton. When I was at McCarter, I brought Sarah with me. And when when I was there, we we commissioned a play called The Clean House that went on to have a big yes. life. And actually in my first season in our space, uh, we did a play of hers called Dear Elizabeth, which is about Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell. And, you know, so we've just worked together a ton. And I, I have to say, I, I sort of love that idea that you find artists and you grow up together. And that yeah. feels really beautiful. I mean, I'm sure you have collaborators that like you just sort of grow together and you enrich each other. Yeah, Um, it's true. Like there are, as a drag queen in New York City, I had the opportunity to come up and become one of the big players on the big stages uh, for drag in the city. And I would find queens that were talented and new and bring them out on stage with me. And now I'm asking them for advice because they've grown so much over the years that we all have that we have, we can exchange that kind of that kind of advice. So yeah, that's really beautiful. And it's really a huge part of women's project theater that you build those long lasting relationships and encourage other people to build them. So I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to ask you something unfabulous, because you mentioned this in an interview before, and I thought it was a really important thing for people to hear that you get to do you get to go out in the combat boots and the miniskirt and meet Sarah Rule. But you also have to spend a lot of time in the dark under your fluorescent lights fundraising. And I kind of wanted you to talk about, as someone who did a lot of fundraising myself for nonprofits and for arts institutions when I was growing up, how do you keep your heart in the game and your passion and your fire going when a lot of it is not cute? It's not, it's not all like those those wonderful creative moments you know well that's why you have to love it right that's why you have to be in the right place that's why you have to be in an institution where you really believe the work matters right like you know I'd be making a lot more money if I was on the west coast making films but that wasn't what ultimately mattered to me and also when I was you know I was on a track to really barrel towards that Broadway career but for me I realized that this other thing was important to me advocacy for you know marginalized voices and so uh so for me that's the thing that makes the you know signing the 
you know, four inch stack of acknowledgement letters, which I'm sure you yeah. know very well. Yes. And, you know, making the fundraising calls and proofing the 10,000 grant and all of that stuff. You, if you really have a clarity about why it helps push you through that. And, you know, you also have to, I think it's important to pay attention to your artist self, because I felt like, you know, I feel like when the balance is off and I'm only doing that stuff and I'm not really engaging with the work and the curation and the producing and the engagement with the actual artists, then yeah. I, then I, I get burnt out. But, and yeah. this year has been hard because it's really been skewing so yes. hard for yeah. other stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is why it was so great to go to the Bay Area for two weeks. And, you know, I mean, I look like, you know, Boba Fett with like a big masks and a shield and all that stuff. Yeah. But it allowed me to be in space doing the thing I love most. And I think the thing I'm best at, which is making a piece of theater, um, yeah. whether it was on film or whether it was in space, like, but doing that thing. And it really renewed me towards that other stuff because I, I, it was like, I think this is a good question for you to ask me because I think this year has been a year of maybe not so much balance. And so, you know, just like understanding what you need to feed you and get you through the hard stuff. Cause there's always going to be stuff you don't want to do. I mean, I think there's maybe a misconception that like, I'm an artistic director. I just do fabulous stuff. I just like meet with artists and I, you know, like that kind of yeah. thing. And, and, you know, the bulk of it is really, and I'm sure you understand is really just the, you know, the, the compromise and the, you know, the coalition building and the um, yeah. fundraising and the beating the pavement, like, you know, like really yeah. advocating for the institution that you love. I remember your story is reminding me of when I used to work at a museum and I would get burnt out and my grant coordinator would always say, go downstairs into the museum when you are burnt out. Don't stay up in the office and try to force yourself to work through it. Go downstairs, sit in on one of our education programs, watch one of our films in the theater, like go th walk through the gallery because that will remind you that you ac actually do have a reason for being here and doing this. And yeah, and I think... This year, like you said, is like having that cut off and you just kind of have to remember in this abstract way what you wanted to do. And it is hard. Yeah, it's been really hard. As For me as a drag queen, it's been a lot of sponsorships and things like that. It's really, it is a lot like fundraising and it's been less of that going out and sweating on someone's face and like, you know, jumping around and making them laugh. It's just like, a, it's a different world. The last live event that I saw was actually a drag show in Brooklyn. It was the Nubia tour. Um, and oh my gosh. Same. That yeah. was the last thing I saw. It yeah. Was I saw that too. Really incredible. And I think about it all the time. Just the idea of like the immediacy of all those bodies in space. So incredible. Yeah. yeah. So you have this passion for what your institution does. And I'm going to pretend to be ignorant for a second, just so you can talk it through. Now, there are a lot of great, successful women writers out there already. Why do we need a place to 
showcase their work? That is a great question. That It's easy to feel that way. We've seen successes. You know, I feel so excited by the Oscars this year and Chloe Zhao and um, Emerald Fennell and folks like that. I just feel like there's some really visible women. But when you start to break it down, the number, it's, you know, we're more than 50% of the population. We are 100%, not 50% of the representation <laughs> on stage, on film. And it's, you know, certainly we can look at the writers and directors, which are the uh, the folks who are most visible to us and the numbers are, are by no means um, equal or representative of the, of the population. But when you yeah. dig a little bit more deeply in terms of design and other kinds of positions, unless you're talking about costume design, uh, women and, you know, women plus, I would say, uh, yeah. being inclusive about gender, there's there's even less representation and there, the barriers are, are super real, particularly you know, I think set designers really struggle to get equal treatment from crews and shops. And, you know, there's just, there's a notion around what kind of stories women write. There's a notion around there's uh, uh, that the work is domestic. It's not funny. It's not as entertaining. It doesn't succeed. And when you actually look at the numbers, um, the work actually uh, succeeds out of proportion to the resources that's given. And also just, you know, you can just talk about numbers and representation, but when you dig more deeply into budgets and where the work is produced, that theater, some theaters, you know, theaters have more than one space and you'll find often that the work by women, trans folk, gender non-conforming folk will be in a festival in a smaller space. It's given less resource, um, yeah. which is a way to go, oh, we're showing everybody, but are you really showing everyone with like an equal bite at the apple? And so those are the, you know, those are certainly some reasons. I also think, as I said, you know, people have notions around what kind of stories they preconceived notions about what kind of stories our artists would be writing. I always think it's funny. I tell the story all the time, but it's a good one is that like people send me plays and they say, I have a play that's perfect for you. And I always know what it's going to be. It's about two sad ladies in a kitchen talking about sad lady problems. And that's what people, cause that's what people think <laughs> when they, hear about what we are, they think that's what we do. And we want to be a place, I think it's important that there be a place, that there be an identity-focused place that understands that our artists write about all kinds of things. They write about all everything. And yeah. there's no limit placed around their imagination and that they are going to get the same amount of resources that everybody else. And because we're not Broadway theater, they are going to get the same kind of credit that they would get at the public theater or uh, any of the other off-Broadway theaters in town. And I think it's important those places exist. You know, I think it's identity-focused places are important because they give people a place where they can be entirely themselves. Another thing that you've talked about is kind of bias in reviews. And when you have either a male-dominated press or a pressured press, that where you have a patriarchal gaze, like it really affects the way that people read slash look at plays by women plus. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you've squared with that over the years. It's tough. Um, I, I think there are fewer female critics. That's just a thing. And when you start thinking about women of color, there's even less representation. So you start to realize that people are people write from their own experience and they presume things based on their own experience. You know, those things that I was saying about people 
think our work is, like that it's domestic, that's not funny, all those things. You find that critics are painting our work with that brush, whether or not it fits, because they walk in just pre-deciding who we right. are and what, uh, you know, what kind of work we do. And, you know, I think, you know, we've had some issues where a news outlet, an art section will make us wait to have a critic because they can't find a critic who can, you know, the, it's great. The, the initial impulse, great. Let's send a woman, let's send a woman of color to represent this work of color, which is a great idea, but because they have spent no time cultivating those critics, it means that those artists who are waiting to get a review wait to the point beyond which that review can be helpful to them. So it actually Uh, disadvantages them and then you know and it's that or get a get a review uh, or a write-up about the piece that is diminishing to the work it feels like ah Hobson's choice right or bad you're kind of like pulling up the edge of the carpet and you realize you're having to pull up the entire thing as you're as you're going along you're like wow there's rot everywhere that's amazing (laughs) but you're working to create coalitions and relationships and mentorships that are going to build a world beyond this. And you have something called the Pipeline Festival, which is a huge program and a much loved one. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it does. Well, so the Pipeline Festival is sort of the culminating project of our lab residency, which is a two-year residency for writers, directors, and producers. And so we are actually the only folks in the country, gender aside, who's uh, actively putting together a cohort of writers, directors, and producers. It felt po- it felt powerful to us because, you know, there's the old, we hear about the old boys club, right? Folks, you know, uh, are mentoring, there, there's a pathway towards success for dudes, because they're being mentored by, you know, they have older mentors who will bring them up behind them. And as as women, we just haven't been socialized to do that. There aren't the same pathways. I think we're getting better about it. I think we're understanding that this is our job, but we need to create some intentional pathways in that regard. So the the lab first started as a group for directors in the 80s. We added playwrights in the 90s and we added producers in the early 2000s. And so now it is this like force. We have, there've been about 600 folks who've been in the lab throughout our history. And that is that's a, that's an old girls club, right? That is a group of folks who can pull each other up, an intentional community, and it creates that network, both in terms of the internal cohort of 15 writers, directors, and producers who become each other's, they just become each other's community, but yeah. also they can reach back across previous lab cohorts to, you know, to make relationships and to find mentorship. Sarah Rule, who we just talked about, Sarah was in the lab. I could just think about, you know, we look at like the directors who've won Tony Awards, women who've won Tony Awards, very small group. Most of them have been in our lab. And you start to look. And so now adding producers, you have people who can very intentionally take that work forward, but also for the producers, making powerful relationships with artists is, is valuable for them as well. So the Pipeline Festival, at the end of the two years, we trio them up, writer, director, producer, and then they make things. And we invite people from all over the country to see the work. And the goal is for it to be a launch pad for a career. And it's, you know, it's been extraordinary. I mean, you know, folks 
jump from the lab to Broadway. They jumped from the lab to film and television. You know, they're just, you know, they're having all of the successes. And that's very intentional on our part is to like really focus on what does it take to launch a career? You mentioned how... I guess graduates, alumni of the program will mention current residents and you have reaching back and forth and support across those, you know, generations. I think that's such a beautiful thing. You create uh, like a nexus for for women to come together and support each other, which is not a narrative that we usually support in American culture. The thing about there's about 15 15 current artistic directors of major theaters who were lab alums. And so that's another like, okay, so now they're running institutions and they can, you know, pull folks forward. It just becomes a, you know, and then they can, you know, they can also, they can hire people, but they can also be starting those programs for themselves at their own institutions. So you have this incredible program and you have built all of these new ways of coping with the world as it is now. I kind of want to know what's next for the Women's Project Theater. What's one of your big goals that you want to bring forward in this next year? I'm trying to figure out how to how to release a movie. So that's a whole thing. I'm like, oh, okay. I need to figure out how to like how to submit to uh, film festivals and all those things. That so there's that. There's the thing that's right in front of me, which is very much it's which exciting. Is big enough, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But also, there's like the year to come and thinking about what it means to reopen a theater after it's been closed for a year and a half. And what does it mean? You know, I think we're all thinking appropriately about how we want to occupy space, anti-racist practices in institutions. And so, you know, I think we have the opportunity, a unique opportunity to occupy space really intentionally together, but also just the practicalities of like, when will people be willing to go into a building? When will they be willing to sit in a seat next to a person? When's that going to happen? And just trying to make the best decisions possible, you know, when people's real safety is in your hands and, you know, trying to find the line between being overly optimistic and being cowardly. And I think that like, I feel like, you know, TikTok, like what time is it? And you'll, I'll get, you'll get a different answer from me though. I do think, you know, I don't think it'll be spring or summer or even early fall for us. I just think yeah. we want to sort of, ride out the vaccine and the, the, you know, all of that stuff to sort of come back in a really thoughtful and intentional way and come back strong. And we've, you know, and also the pipeline festival is, is this coming spring. So that'll be fun and a way to sort of celebrate this current group of lab artists, but also how are we like, what is the thing that brings us back into the space? Like what's the first, what's the first show? What's it going to be? What's that going to be like? How do we invite people into the space? How much hand sanitizer do I have to buy? There's just like a lot of practical things. All you have to do is find a piece that covers everything that we've learned in the last two years. That's all. No problem. (laughs) I'll get on that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Everyone, you should visit the Women's Project Theater website to see what they're up to and Please, please, if you can, support them because they're doing incredible things. I want to thank you again, Lisa, and I can't wait to see what you guys are going to do next. 
I so appreciate the time. This was the most fun, the most fun I've had today, certainly, and maybe the most <laughs> fun in a while. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was such a great project, not only for for bringing women's plays to the stage, but also creating professional connections that last for an entire lifetime. Like this is a lifetime opportunity and I thought it was so beautiful to hear about. And an interesting thing to think about is how many theater reviewers are male and what a difference that makes when you're, like when you have a really diverse field in the arts and it's only white male reviewers like that's a problem you know yeah it's like what are the chances are your project is going to get like an unbiased great review that will help it grow when people reviewing it are all thinking and looking one way yeah exactly yeah so i think a really important project and a really wonderful interview however caitlin enough about that it's time for us to take a little break and then we'll be back okay we're back Now, first of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite ones right here at the end of the show. So, Caitlin, do you have a favorite review this week? I have one that's a little different this week. This is an email from um, a guest that we had a couple weeks ago. Yes. Who did the dioramas. Yes, Nixon Gerber. <laughs> so Lori Nix emailed us and said, Hello again. Hope you're doing well. Let us thank you again for including us in your great She's a Woman podcast. We enjoyed talking with you immensely and love the other guests you're featuring. Such a great outlet for information and entertainment. And for what it's worth, we've had a noticeable uptick in interest in what we do including a major art critic. So, thank you. I don't know if I got a major art critic to pay attention to them, but if I did, then I am very proud of myself. Yeah. That makes me happy. And just seeing that there's major uptick in their work, I just like like to think that it's because of our amazing listeners. Yeah. Being curious and, and looking them up and things like that that's why yeah. i like to i like to believe that yeah. you know so thank you guys out there for not only listening to us every week and joining us in our little bubble of crazy but also for like taking action and supporting the women that because like that was the whole idea of yeah, the podcast yeah that was the whole so, point yeah. yeah so thank you very much but enough about that Caitlin, it is time for my favorite part of the week. It's time for the credits. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71, who is really going to want us to edit this thing on time. That's right. We're behind. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. I feel like we did that one in perfect harmony. Yeah. Also, you guys can't see, but the whole time she's saying the credits, she's doing hand move like hand motions (laughs) she's pointing to herself and just (laughs) she really loves the credits (laughs) oh because i feel like it's real i feel like we're doing a real podcast uh i'm michael babaro (laughs) see See you tomorrow tomorrow. (laughs) uh